Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we've reached a milestone today, guys, okay? Uh, we're, this is our 12th week in our Outsider series in the book of Acts. We're going to finish up Acts 12 today, and it's our 38th week in Acts. That is wild. Uh, and we're only in Acts chapter 12. There's 28 chapters in Acts, in case you're curious. So uh, we got a whole other year to go, but we're going to kind of finish off this year uh, by ending Acts chapter 12 in Outsiders. And you've probably noticed this, that the book of Acts, and this series also specifically, has a lot of uh, interesting stories in them. I mean, we've got angelic visits, we've got prison breaks, we've got miracles, we've got all sorts of things happening in the book of Acts, and today's story is no different. It's a very short, kind of strange narrative that we'll look at, and when, you, when we read it in a second, you might think, okay, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> what, what's, so I got a rabbit out of my hat here that we're going to, we, but I think we can learn some lessons today uh, from this story at the end of Acts chapter 12. So let's jump into it. We'll read it at the beginning, and then we'll kind of uh, look through it and see what lessons we can learn from it today. Acts chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse number 20, Acts 12, 20. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so he sent a delegation to make peace with him. They sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a god, not of a man. Instantly, the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. That's a weird ending there that we'll focus on before we're done. The, the sh- sudden shift from Herod dying of an intestinal uh, disease to the church continuing on. Told you it was a weird story, right? I told you it was, it's kind of like Old Testament kind of times here, you know? The king took praise for himself. He died of worms in his intestines, that sort of thing. It's weird. So what can we gain from this uh, account? I think this short narrative, it's really, it's all about decisions and perceptions is what, what it comes down to. Because decisions can be good and appropriate and correct, but some decisions that we make can be off of faulty information or can just be bad decisions. Perceptions also can be accurate and positive or they can be incomplete and incorrect. So today in light of that, we're going to, what we're going to do is choose faith over blank. Faith over blank. Really, you could put everything, and that's the idea. Faith over blank. You could put anything in that blank. And faith is always a better choice than whatever you put in the blank. 
So we'll, see, we'll fill in the blank three times today and see in this short five-verse narrative, there are three either decisions or perceptions that we see in this account um, that if we choose faith over any one of these three other things, we will end up on the right side, okay? So the first thing we'll look at here, and we'll spend most of our time on this one, is faith over flattery. Faith over flattery. We'll look at two kind of sides of this idea. We'll focus most of our time here. So Herod Agrippa is the guy mentioned. He's the, what you would call the king of the Jews, okay? So now you may recognize the name Herod. It it comes up a lot, and it'll come up again later on near the end of Acts. So he is appointed by the Roman government, who's in control of really most of the world at this time in history, and he's been appointed as a Jewish person over these Jewish provinces in the Roman Empire. Now, Herod's grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the first. And he was the guy who was in charge when Jesus was born at Christmas time, right? And so Herod the Great, this guy's grandfather, is the one that slaughtered dozens, if not hundreds, of young boys trying to kill the Messiah that had been born, as he'd been told. So he's got a history. Not only did Herod the Great murder all these babies, he also had his own son killed out of paranoia, which a lot of kings did at that time. It's pretty common. And so Herod Agrippa's father was murdered by his grandfather. You talk about a messy family history. You think your family's messed up, okay? I mean, we're talking about fathers killing sons. And so after Agrippa's father is murdered by his grandfather, he's sent away to Rome uh, to study and be educated. While he's there as a young man, he ends up getting into a lot of trouble, racking up a lot of debt, and so creditors are coming after him. So as a young man, he goes back to Judea, where now his uncle is in charge. His uncle now is the Herod over this region. He lives there for a while, then goes back to Rome, but then he gets himself in trouble. Because Agrippa is friends uh, with another young man named Caligula, And he is kind of wanting Caligula to be the emperor of Rome. That's a problem because he's not. (laughs) And so the emperor of Rome imprisons Agrippa basically for speaking against the sovereign. So he's in there for a long time until, through a matter of other historical events, you can read about that elsewhere, uh, Caligula does become emperor of Rome. Uh, That's really good luck for this guy here. I mean, it's an amazing stroke of luck that this guy has. And so when his friend becomes emperor of Rome, he releases him from prison and also makes him the Herod, the next Herod, over this region of Judea, over the Jews. So Herod Agrippa is this guy here. We saw him a little bit last week where he beheads the apostle James, the brother of John. He imprisons Peter with plans to kill him until an angel releases Peter miraculously from prison. And so we've seen him before. But what we notice in that story and in this one is that Agrippa is a political animal. He is uh, very, I don't know what the word is. I guess political is the the best word I can use. Uh, He's cunning in some ways, but he's really into himself quite a bit as we see in this story. Like when he gets praised as a god, he receives it. I mean, you got to be some kind of, you got to be in some kind of zone in your brain to go that route, but but he does. He's very self-interested uh, in himself. He's a political animal. And so because he was who he was, he was susceptible to flattery from the people, as we'll see again in just a second. And that was his downfall. 
So his pride, his ego, is got to him, and it was, ended up being his downfall. So we see at the beginning of a text here that Herod was upset for some reason with these cities, Tyre and Sidon, in the north of this area. We don't know why. Even history doesn't tell us why, but we do have an extra-biblical account of this story. This is so interesting. So the first-century historian Josephus records the event we just read in the book of Acts. There's an extra-biblical historical account of this event. And it, the, the, the same major points line up, both the Bible and history line up together. One thing that Josephus does talk about is it says he put on his royal robes. That's what Luke tells us in Acts. What Josephus tells us is that these robes were made with threads of pure silver. So he's wearing robes of silver sitting on this throne. And so part of the reason that people said he's a god when he spoke was the imagery is there. Like he's literally shining and glowing like a non-human being as he's giving this speech to these people. And they are so, it seems, so mesmerized by what he's saying that they, oh, he's a god, he's a god. Really what they're doing is they're buttering him up to get what they want from him. They're using flattery to stroke his ego so that he will not be mad at them anymore. And it seems like it probably would have worked because he, when they bow down to him as a god, he doesn't say, oh, no, 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 that's not, we're not going there, that's not me. He says, yes, more please, you know, let, can we do that again? Just keep it coming. And so then, obviously, uh, it says that he died of some sort of intestinal uh, disease. It's interesting, I think, that Josephus is an extra-biblical historical writer, uh, historian from the first century, that he writes about it, because when it comes to this idea of flattery, it's sort of all over ancient philosophy of the time. It's not just a biblical idea that we're looking at, although that's the main point of why we're here, but it's also interesting that the historians and writers even of that time saw the emptiness of flattery. They saw it doesn't really give the results that we think it will, and it doesn't promise what it says it will. For instance, a first century Roman philosopher named Musonius, um, he says that if an audience is moved simply by a speaker's rhythm and rhetoric and not the substance, nothing's been accomplished. That's still true today, even in our political arena. If we're just, oh, this person's a great speaker, they're a smooth talker, so I'm going to, you know, go with them. That's not always the best gauge of the right person to vote for. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm just saying that's not the reason to vote for someone. Oh, they can speak well. I mean, so can I, but I'm not going to, I don't want your vote, you know? So it's like, who cares? Who, like, what are they saying? That's what even in the first century they're talking about. Uh, Lucian, who is a second century Roman satirist, uh, he kind of mocks people that flatter leaders. Uh, he calls them parasites. Yikes. He says, here's why. He says, the same people that will publicly praise a rich man for his wealth will secretly pray for his death so they can obtain his wealth. That's the emptiness of flattery. When we resort to those ways to get what we want, it leaves us empty. When we give in to flattery and are used and manipulated by people, it leads to emptiness. And it's interesting here, again, lining up the historical account and the biblical account, Josephus tells us that Agrippa was struck with an illness and then died five days later. Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord struck him with an illness and that he died. It doesn't say the time frame, but he says that he was struck with an illness from an angel and died. So while ancient philosophers and scripture are basically saying the same thing, there's a difference, and here's what it is. While ancient philosophy may have seen the emptiness of flattery, God saw it as dangerous and sinful because it's rooted in pride. 
So here's what Isaiah the prophet says, Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. See, when the people gave Herod this praise, this flattery, he received it, forgetting that God is the Lord and he will not share his glory with anyone. And I think it's ironic that Herod, who is the king of the Jews, right, the leader of the Jews, really, he, he's committing blasphemy here, isn't he? He's accepting praise as a God. That's blasphemy. Yet, uh, you know, his uncle w- would have crucified Jesus for blasphemy, even though this never happened with him. I just think that's an ironic twist of fate here, that someone who is leading the Jews and, and is committing blasphemy, well, I mean, he's, he is struck dead, so there's that. But uh, that Jesus was accused of this, even though he didn't commit this sin. And again, the idea that God sees here, the main problem with flattery is that it's rooted in pride. And so if we attempt to use flattery on someone, we're we're kind of trying to bring out the worst in them, which would not be what God would want us to do. If we falsely give in to flattery, we can give into this trap of thinking that we're more than we are, or we negate what God has done in our lives, and I'm going to take credit for my success, or I'm going to kind of, you know, I'll do the acceptance speech thing when I get the award. I want to thank, you know, the man upstairs. I want to thank my parents, but then like the rest of your life, he's just totally absent from your life. That's sort of a more modern day twist on what's happening here, I think, with Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. There's a similar story to this also in the Old Testament. About 600 years before this happens to Herod Agrippa, there's another king in the country of Babylon who has a very similar storyline. So if you remember, uh, about 600 years before that, the southern kingdom of Judah is in exile in Babylon. And now they've done it to themselves, and God's punishing them, yes, and he's put them in the hands of Babylon. But the king of Babylon is named Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's a fun name to say, Nebuchadnezzar. So he's the king. He's really one of the most powerful men on earth. There's also extra biblical evidence of this king at this time. So again, I think what we're seeing, one thing theme we're seeing is that the Bible can be trusted. It's reliable because there are other sources outside of itself that affirm and confirm what the Bible says. So needless to say, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he wants his sort of, you know, people around him to interpret the dream for him. But there's a catch. The catch is he's not telling them what the dream is. He wants them to tell him what his dream was and then what the dream meant. Like he's asking a lot of these guys. And of course, no one can tell him what the dream was and then they certainly can't interpret it for him. And so he's going to have all of his assistants killed for not doing this. So Daniel's one of these assistants that's going to be killed even though he's not yet been asked to interpret the dream. But he says, hey, wait, 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 I'll pray and I believe that God will help me to figure out what this dream is and what it means. So in Daniel chapter 2, he prays and God gives him the dream and the interpretation. I want, you to, I want us to read this together. When, when Daniel gets this revelation from God, here's part of his prayer of response. Daniel 2.21, he says, he controls the course of world events, that's God, He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. So Daniel, in this prayer, acknowledges God's complete sovereignty. Think about what he's saying here. He removes kings and sets up other kings. 
So Daniel is so convinced of God's sovereignty and goodness and power over everything, he even sees his own condition that he's in under a foreign power, right, as God's sovereignty. So he's going so far as to believe, God, you're so powerful over everything. I believe that you have orchestrated events, even ones I don't like and don't understand and can't explain. I believe that. That's faith. That's faith for Daniel here. Even this evil king Nebuchadnezzar, you've set him up for a purpose, for a reason. And also what he says here is he, he doesn't really give in to his own ego. Well, you know, wow, I'm really good. I figured this dream out. It's amazing. No, no. He says God gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to the scholars. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, this was your dream. Here's what it means. And he receives it. He receives the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Things go well for a while for Nebuchadnezzar. You think, oh, this is going on a good track. Things are going well. Then he falls into the flattery trap. Nebuchadnezzar starts to read his own press a little too much, starts to believe his own positive, uh, you know, press a little bit. And so then here's what happens. His pride and ego eventually take over. And sometime later, Daniel 4, here's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, very similar to what happened to Herod in Acts 12. It says this, as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. Uh Uh-oh. O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Again, a very weird story, but a very interesting parallel to Acts chapter 12. We have these people who get a little too full of themselves, a little too flattered by their own uh, greatness of themselves, and it ends up costing them. But eventually, Nebuchadnezzar came back to his senses, gave glory to God. The story kind of ends in a happy way for him in a way. But the idea here of this story, and I think the result of Herod in Acts 12, is this is simply a physical representation, I think, of what flattery and pride do to us on the inside. Flattery and pride debase us. It takes us to our lowest, more animalistic way of thinking about ourselves. It's me first, me only. Flattery, and the way it's used here in Acts 12, it's really a man-made tool, but instead God wants us to live lives of faith and trust in him. So here's what that means very quickly. So it means I don't have to flatter someone or use someone to get what I want or need like the people in Acts 12 did. I can rely on God for what I need because what I'm doing is I'm trying to use people to get what I want instead of just asking God for what I want. I'm trying to make things happen in my way and trying to force things uh, to happen when I can just trust God to supply what I need. And then on the other side of that, I can avoid thinking or believing that I'm the man, you know, that I'm awesome, that I did this because I can know that God is sovereign and in control. It's only through his grace I can do anything. It's only through his power that I can accomplish anything. He's got great plans for you, but not because of you, right? He's got great plans for you, but not not because of me. That was the trap that Herod fell into, that Nebuchadnezzar fell into. 
It became about them, and instead it should be about how great God is. His plans are great for me, but not because of me. Um, and then we, here, here's what we see, too, in the Proverbs. It, tell, it talks about flattery, uh, flattery in the Proverbs, not in a positive light, as you can imagine. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and flattering words cause ruin. Proverbs 29, verse 5, to flatter friends is to lay a trap for their feet. Now, if you have kids or when you were a kid, you know how this works. Your kid comes up to you out of nowhere, Mom, you're so pretty. Dad, you're so smart. The first question in my mouth is, what do you want? You know, that's flattery because I, I know it's coming from somewhere. I know something's up when the first thing out of nowhere for my kids is a compliment. Uh, I know that there's something behind that. And flattery, when used as a weapon, is just simply manipulation by another name. So basically what it comes down to is I'm going to compliment someone to get what I want from them to butter them up. I'm going to appeal to their vanity to get to them. I'm going to use kind yet insincere words as a tactic, you know, in my brain. I'm going to tell someone what I know they want to hear to receive something in return. That's what flattery does. That's, that's why God says, no, choose faith over flattery. It's not your words that are going to convince them. It's going to have to be my power to convince them. It's not, I don't want you to try to weasel your way through life like you're, you know, wheeling and dealing. I just want you to trust me for what you need. So we don't want to be a flatterer. Back to the Proverbs, don't cause ruin by being a flatterer. Don't lay traps for others by being a flatterer. Now, I'm not saying be rude and obnoxious to people. You know, I'm not, there's still a filter involved in how we treat one another, but I am saying just be honest and consistent. Just that, that's what we want to be. And then also, we want to avoid the trap of flattery over faith. We want to maintain a level head, upward-looking posture in our hearts, grateful attitudes, and maintain humility. Because here's what Jesus says as we, as we wrap up this, this first point here really quickly. Jesus says this in Luke 14, 11, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what Herod Agrippa did not learn. He didn't learn this lesson, and it cost him. And so I pray that we would learn this lesson to not try to manipulate, flatter others because it won't work in the end. Even if you get what you want through flattery and manipulation, you'll feel kind of empty, kind of sleazy, like, oh, yeah, I didn't really treat that person right, or I wasn't really honest with them, or I used them for that reason. And obviously, if we give in to our pride and ego, we set ourselves up too high on the totem pole of our hearts. And what happens then is even if we get what we want that way, we still are missing out on what God has that's best. I'm going for what I want now in the moment, but I need to trust God for what he might have later instead that may be 10 times better if I'll just wait and trust him. So let's choose to live this life of faith. A life that says God is God and I am not. God is in control, so I don't have to be. God is enough so I can trust him to provide and not try to work out and play games with others. Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. That's the kind of life we can live, a life of faith over flattery. The second thing we see here, and that, again, that was a majority of our time together. These last two will be uh, quite a bit shorter. The, the second thing we see here from this story is a life of faith over failure. And if you notice there, we have failure in quotation marks because failure is nothing but perception. It's perception. 
So when you think about where the church is in Acts 12, let's, get, let's go through like kind of a, a sweeping history of what they've endured and where they are in this moment. So, so far, Acts 1 through 12 is about a 15-year period of the history of the church, the first 15 years of the church. Think back to their founder, Jesus. Jesus is a disgraced, crucified carpenter who really never did much of anything. He had a couple dozen followers, a few hundred maybe, and that's it, historically speaking. The leaders now of the church are fishermen. They don't even have enough education or intellect to to be a rabbi in the Jewish church. So they're kind of losers. They're kind of failures. Even the first day of the church, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, things are so out of control and crazy that the onlookers think the people are drunk and out of their minds at 9 in the morning. It's not a great way to start. The people are seen as traitors. These new Christians, these Jesus followers, they're traitors to customs that are thousands of years old. They're traitors to their people, their religion, their families, their community. The religious leaders oppose them every chance they can. Now the government is out to get them. Every day they are constantly under threat, risking everything. So some on the outside, maybe even some on the inside, are seeing this as a failure. We tried, guys, and it's not really going that great, obviously. Yeah, we're seeing pockets here and there and and some cool miracles and stuff. Is it worth it? Is it worth the trouble? Is it worth the threats? Is it worth the danger that we're in? People on the outside saying, this is not going to last. So you can see how they would see this as a failure. But remember the sudden shift at the end of this section, Acts 12, 24 Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. So the opposition, the difficulties, the setbacks, despite all of that, it says the word of God continued to spread. No matter how, even if they thought, I don't know if it's worth it, I don't know if this is working, will this ever catch on? Will this ever grow beyond this little region here? Like, is it worth this? Is this a failure? The word of God continued to spread, the church continued to grow. And this is a new development for this specific group, this church here, this movement in this part of the world. But for the people of God, this is nothing new. They've dealt with feeling like failures over and over and over and feeling like they failed over and over and over this cycle of sin and judgment, sin and judgment. You could see how they would say this is just another in a long cycle of failure. But remember Daniel back in exile that we talked about earlier? So couple hundred years even before that, the prophet Isaiah talked about that time of failure that Daniel would find himself in, this time where God's people are under God's judgment. They're under his wrath in Babylon. And here's what he says about not only that time, but the time on the other side of that failure. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 10, says this, the rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word, God says. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. 
This is in the midst of a Babylonian exile, really before that. But I can only imagine the people in this time, in Daniel's day, would have felt like total failures. We failed God again. We're being judged again. We're no better than our parents or their parents or their parents who failed God again and again and again. These thoughts of failure, they would have had to have held on to these verses like Isaiah 55 to know that despite what they've done, God is greater than that failure. Despite how they perceive their life to be going, God is still in complete control. God says, I never fail. God says, my word never fails. My plan never fails. So let me encourage you. Maybe you are sitting here feeling like a failure for some reason. I've let God down again. I've let this person down again. I've let my family down again. Whatever whatever that thing is, I want you to hear this. God says today, you might be in a slow season or a silent season or in a season of setback. But he says in Isaiah 55, you can... I want you to take this verse today. You will live in joy and peace. Verse 13, I'll read it again. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They'll be an everlasting sign of his power and love. English pastor from the 50s and 60s, Alan Redpath, he said this. Let's keep our chins up and our knees down. We're on the victory side. So maybe you have failed. But can I just encourage you that God never fails? Does that mean something to you? Maybe you've gotten sidetracked in your life, but God is laser focused on his plan. Maybe you're in a season of discouragement. Can I just encourage you choose faith over failure? You can look at the disappointment. You can wallow in that. You can, try, you can just spin your wheels and, and worry and be frustrated and angry, or you can choose faith over failure. You can see that God has an ultimate plan. And maybe what you can see is that this season where I feel like I'm not making any difference, I feel like I'm kind of spinning my wheels, I feel like God's kind of abandoned me here. What if this moment of silence and setback as you perceive it, this failure as you perceive it, what if it's part of God's plan? What if he's trying to get you to slow down? What if he's trying to get you to avoid other things that would be bad, and so he needs you to just kind of sit here for a minute and just wait? What if that's part of what he's got for you? You might think, well, why hasn't this happened yet, and there's slow results or no results, and I'm just, what am I supposed to do? We're supposed to have faith over failure. Will you trust God? Will you see through eyes of faith, see through a lens of faith? Will you say, God, I don't see what you're doing, but I trust you anyway. I don't see any way out of this situation, but I trust you anyway. I know I failed you again and again, and I'm, I'm kind of in it, and i just, you know, feeling sorry for myself. No, I'm not going to look inward. I'm going to look upward. Faith over failure. Here's the last one, then, as we begin to wrap it up, and it's faith over foes. It's similar, but we'll see a little bit of a distinction here as well. Again, the church in Acts is facing many foes, and every step along the way, they've chosen faith in spite of that. Once again, the Jewish religious leaders, they face foes, but they've defied them. That's what, I mean, Peter and John from the very beginning said, nope, we're doing what God wants, not what you say we should do. They stood toe-to-toe, and God was with them. 
when Saul persecuted the church, right, he was a big threat. He was a big-time foe that the church is facing. And yet what happened? God miraculously transformed his life. So now instead of a foe, he's a friend. He's on the front lines now of what the church is doing, and we'll start seeing that as we continue on with Acts next year. And now we have people like Herod who are killing leaders, who are persecuting the church, but God took care of him. So in every case, the church maintained faith over foes. And with Paul, as we mentioned a minute ago, this will continue for him. Because as we'll see when we study Paul next year, uh, he starts a couple of riots in a couple cities. That's fun, right? There are many plots on his life along the way. There are several attempts on his life along the way that we'll see. The Roman government is after him. They got posters all over the place with his face on it, you know. And, but here's the thing. He chose faith over foes. He didn't give in when, oh, this guy's really powerful. He's going to kill me. He didn't give in. Oh, it's too much opposition. I don't know if I can hang. He, took, he chose faith over foes. And then he wrote about it, Romans chapter 8. Here's what he says about this. I want you to hear this this morning. Romans 8, 31. Paul says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? You've got you to gotta catch this, okay? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Now, you've got to help me with this last part, okay? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Who? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. you got one more chance, okay? Here we go. Who then will condemn us? There we go. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Paul believed in faith over foes. He didn't just write about it. He wrote it because he lived it. He knew it, he knew it worked because he was living it out. So the question is, will we live this out? Will we have faith over our foes? When people oppose your faith strongly, will you have faith over foes? When people, and this seems childish, like this is what third graders do, but it's still true as adults. People will ostracize you for your faith, for your stance on what the Bible says. Society will try to push you to the fringes as a weirdo and a freak and any number of other names they want to use. And so it's going to require faith over foes. When people talk behind your back or spread rumors or plot your destruction, when they hope the worst for you, when they mistreat you, you've got to have faith over foes. And this is not easy because our tendency is to lash out, you know? Our tendency is to defend ourselves all the time. Our tendency is to get back at that person or I'm going to tell them, I'm going to show them. But that's not faith. That's giving in. Right? That's getting a reaction that they want. We've got to give it to God and trust him and have faith over foes. He will defend you. He will take care of you. He will take care of those other people. Right? He is your justice. We'll talk about justice next week as we kick off a Christmas series a little bit. But God is your justice in every situation that you face. We can trust him over anything and everything, even our ultimate foe, Satan. Because sometimes we get stuck on the people that are our foes, and really it's a spiritual thing. It's deeper than that. And so as we close, here's what Jesus says in John 16, 33. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate that. But take heart because I've overcome the world. You will face difficulty, opposition, even foes. 
You will face doubters and haters, but Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. So you can have faith over everything. Faith over flattery. I don't have to use people to get what I want. I don't have to give in. I can give God the glory, right? I can choose faith over perceived failure in my life because God's in control. And I can have faith even over foes and opposition that are coming against me because God is so good. Let's choose to live faith over everything in our lives every day. Let's pray. God, that is our prayer that we would live lives of faith over everything that we face. Faith over flattery. I don't have to manipulate people. I can trust you. I don't have to use people. I can trust you. I don't have to give in to the positive press about me. I can give you the glory. I don't have to think that I did this or that it's up to me to do this, but I can trust you and not give in to my ego, to my pride, but just reflect all the glory and praise to you, give you all my worries and cares because you're in control. Even if we feel like we're a failure, God, I've messed up again, I've blown it again, I've dropped the ball again, you never fail. You will pick us up from the heap that we are in and say, let's do that again. You will go with us, you'll go before us, you'll walk beside us. That's who you are. So we don't have to give in to these feelings of failure or defeat or discouragement because we know that you are greater than all of those things. And you're greater than those that might come against us. You're greater than those that would speak against us or plot against us or try to push us aside or call names or do things or whatever society, those around us that that aren't really maybe your followers, don't quite get it. We don't have to resist them because you resist them. We don't have to fight them because you take care of them. We don't have to defend ourselves because you take care of us. And so we trust you in all things. We choose faith over everything. Fill in that blank with whatever we want, and we can trust you despite what we face. So I pray that we would live that kind of life of faith this week, even as we leave this place today. pray that you give us an awesome week this week full of faith and bring us back next time ready for more and more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.